We've made it to the end of the first series of Bring Back V10s, and in typical fashion, we're going to sign off by breaking our own rules, turning our series finale episode into a double header. All through the series, we've been asking you to send your questions to us on social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s. And we've had so many questions that we can't possibly get through them all in one episode. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, for part one of our finale are two Bring Back V10s regulars, Ed Straw and Matt Beer. Now, gents, we don't have a traditional opening question to fire at you this time. So I've handed the power there over to Jordan Stover to do it for us. He sent in a question asking, what is your favourite car of the V10 era? So Ed, get us started. Well, of the era uh, from 89 onwards, I'd have to say the Jordan 191. A beautiful car, wonderful lines, that glorious green colour. Performed remarkably as well, taking fifth in the championship. Showed that a tiny team with a bit of ingenuity, design savvy, could do great things. Gary Anderson's not here. You don't have to pick his car. This isn't the Gary Anderson show. Well, that's the thing. I'll be recording a Gary Anderson F1 show very shortly, and I don't want it to turn into him taking me to task. Yeah, well, I got in trouble with Gary uh, at pre-season testing a few years ago because I told him that the Jordan 191 is my third favourite F1 car of all time. And uh, then you reminded of him of that on a podcast and uh, he said that I should have chosen the Andrea Moda which I do think is a pretty good looking car actually it was horrendous but but pretty good my favorite would be the Williams FW14B phenomenal car iconic with red five on the front taking Nigel Mansell to the world championship but what about you Matt? Uh, Williams FW17 the 1995 car maybe not the best looking livery maybe not actually the prettiest car but um, it that was my favourite season around that time, and it was the car that should have won that title, but for a variety of rubbish driver and reliability reasons, didn't. So, because I quite like broken things, that's that's the one that's always stuck with me from that era. That's a much better car than it gets credit for, I think. Uh, now, talking of perhaps underachieving Formula One cars, our first proper question comes from Willem Chechi. He says, love the podcast. Can you tell us more about the Ferrari F310? A beautiful failure. Uh, Matt, have we ever heard the word beautiful put next to the Ferrari F310, which is, of course, the 1996 car, the first one Michael Schumacher drove for Ferrari? I think um, it's unlikely this will ever happen, but Willem and, and I can never kind of do interior design for each other's houses after this question, because it, it's clear we've got massively, massively different taste. To, to me, the 96 Ferrari looked like it looked like the, the 9540 had had sex with a large aircraft. And that was in its original form. And then it got a pointy nose on the front halfway through the season. I'd, you know, that It had the most obtrusive of the very high cockpit sides that year. It just looked bulbous. I, yeah. Ferrari had made beautiful 94 and 95 cars. I think the 94 Ferrari was one of the best looking high nose cars. And then the 95 car was so elegant. And that was, it. it yeah, 96 just looked atrocious. Um, maybe failure is the word that's a bit more... Um, debatable in that context because it did launch the Schumacher Ferrari era it did win three races it did an awful lot better than anything apart from the Williams in 1996 it certainly um outperformed the Benetton that Schumacher had stepped out of uh, the previous year but yeah I think uh, it was an iconic Ferrari in terms of it being the end of Ferrari's really messy era as well you know the all the hype at the start of that season on Ferrari having spent a bazillion pounds to get Schumacher on board all the ingredients coming together with um, Osama Goto, the ex-Honda guy, looking after the engines. John Todd's era really finding its feet. And then the car barely runs in pre-season testing because John Barnard's put an incredible lightweight, fragile gearbox on it. Um, 
it it did quite well um, compared to expectations in the season opener with Irvine getting on the podium and out qualifying the Benettons. But then they had to tack the rear end of the 95 car on for two races um, to try to make up for the gearbox unreliability. So you had this penduluming car that Schumacher was wrestling onto the front row in Argentina. Um, so yeah, definitely an iconic car in a, in a very flawed way. You could see the writing was on the wall for John Barnard through that year as well. So it also has quite a place in F1 history as being the end of kind of his major influence on F1 design. And obviously by the end, middle of the season, it was a race winner and it did outperform Benetton and McLaren right the way through the season. It's heavily, heavily updated as well. I think the amount of change Ferrari put on that car during the season is quite underestimated. Um, obviously it had that major aero revamp halfway through the season where the nose went pointy rather than just fat. Um, but there were lots of you know, more specific detail changes than that that yeah, laid the foundations for Schumacher's failed title, fight, title bids over the following years. Um, but not beautiful, not from any angle. Maybe after a crash, possibly, but that, I think that's about as good as it would have got. It basically looked like a big armchair and it handled like one. If you listen to what Eddie Irvin said about it, just the uncertainty about what would happen when you when you turn the car in. I mean, he he's always said he can't understand how Schumacher did what he did with that car. I mean, you said the Ferrari outperformed everyone apart from Williams, but I think Michael Schumacher outdrove everyone, and um, it just wasn't a, wasn't a good car. But uh, yeah, memorable. At least at least it got gradually slightly less ugly. We can say that of it. So I'm not sure about that. I, I think the high nose made it just as ugly, if not worse. Like Matt said, it was, it was still pointy and horrible. But yeah, a sign of the, the miracle Schumacher was able to perform for Ferrari and would do over the, the years that followed. So let's move on. Michael Armadi asks, uh, well, he says, really enjoying your retro podcast. Thanks very much, Michael. He says, would love to hear discussions on Hockenheim 94 or Suzuka 97 in the future. We're going to pick Hockenheim 94, Michael, because... Ed, you love this race, so there's a risk that if we set you loose on this, this could be the last question we ask in the episode. But Hockenheim 94, a very memorable race for, for several reasons, and what stands out most to you? Yeah, there's loads of storylines, chaos on track and in the pits with the Bennett on fire with uh, Jos Verstappen. But what really stands out and is sometimes forgotten, actually, is the significance of Gerhard Berger's win from pole for Ferrari. That ended a win drought of 60-odd races going back to the 1990 Spanish Grand Prix. Even more importantly, it was the first since Jean Tot took over as the team's general manager just over a, a year earlier. So this was the first tangible success for this team and its transformation from shambles in the early 90s to all-conquering machine in the, the early years of, of this century. I mean, Berger was always good at Hockenheim. He had to absorb loads of pressure from two-stopping Schumacher early on. Schumacher later uh, retired. And, of course, we also had Ligiers on the podium, which I always enjoy with Olivier Panis and Eric, Eric Bernard. But, but this was the day that Ferrari's sleeping giant awoke with a win it was also it, benetton pit fire aside which was a really terrifying thing it was kind of the race f1 needed at that point in that season as well things had either been tragic or controversial or boring basically until that point and so a race of surprises an emotional winner with burger big break for Ligier, which was having a really miserable year up to that point as well yeah it was it's actually my favorite race from that season i'd say um maybe suzuka but um Worth this. I'm I'm glad Ed has encyclopedic knowledge on it. It's a good. It's one of the a good choice for Ed to have encyclopedic knowledge on it, which isn't always the case with his things. He's got knowledge on, and any race where half the field's eliminated in a couple of separate crashes at the start is, is brilliant. And they let Philippe Alio race for McLaren next race because Hakkinen got a ban. What's not to like? <laughs> yep, we could go on and on, but we won't. Uh, lots of questions to get through. CM Parfait sixteen says, talk about BAR. 
I'm curious about its first season's relationship with Jacques Villeneuve, and that's why your question got in, and podium runs in 2004. Matt, let's talk about the early stuff, because BAR came in with sky-high expectations. You know, Reynard had uh, designed the car and had this reputation for winning on its debut in various categories, but they didn't even score a point in that first year, and I, I think it maybe gave British-American tobacco that was funding the whole thing a bit of a wake-up call. Yeah, when I saw this question, my first thought was just about how much BAR was hated in the Formula One community coming in. It was like a, all the hubris around the whole Jacques Villeneuve package at that point had built such momentum. And the idea of him quitting Williams for his own team was was being floated so early in what turned out to be his championship winning season as well. And, you know, he'd got such a reputation for doing things differently, both positively and negatively. It's one thing passing Schumacher around the outside at the final corner of Estoril. It's another to, with the whole, the baggy overalls, the purple hair, the publishing a book about himself after his first season that includes a picture of him urinating. There's so many things that were... I think I own two copies of that yeah, book, hardback and paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there were so many things where this whole kind of I'm Jacques Villeneuve, I do things differently reputation was kind of building to an almost irritating point for Formula One very early on in his career. And to be setting up his own team with Craig Pollock, with Reynard coming along with its whole, yeah, we could win our first F1 race as well. And then the whole split livery thing, which just seemed like it was picking a fight for the sake of picking a fight. And like it hadn't been, that argument should have been had much earlier rather than getting a few months into into its first season with it still raging on and talk of BR trying to take the FIA to court and then race bans being mooted at one point if it turned up with the, with the split livery. And um, one thing I think is forgotten, not necessarily, it's still a matter of taste, but actually those two individual liveries were both quite good. They, they looked hideous. Yeah, agreed. Hideous. Seller tapes together with a zip down the front, but either of them would have been, you know, start the season with one, then go, oh, we're having a rebrand change in July. That might have worked. But um, yeah, and then the fact that the car scored zero points, didn't finish a race till Spa in August, and that was the weekend where... Both the cars got destroyed in identical O Rouge accidents, which again fitted this Jacques Villeneuve kind of devil may care. I do stuff differently. I'll take this corner when it's in, flat out when it's impossible and make my teammate copy me um, kind of brand. But I think, um, again, there's so much negativity around early BAR Jacques Villeneuve as well. People forget actually how, how good he was in 2000. And I do think I keep outing myself as an accidental Jacques Villeneuve fan on these podcasts. But actually, I think in 2000, when they had the Honda engine, which was a massive coup given um, Honda's reputation in F1 from its McLaren years at the time, um, that had a much more powerful engine. They'd, they'd simplified the car. The reliability was massively better. And Villeneuve was a proper hero in 2000. A lot of amazing starts, a lot of holding up cars that could actually turn corners properly through the races. And it took BAR to, to fifth in the championship at the second attempt. So... Yeah, we all can and should laugh about BAR in 1999, but what it did, what it and Villeneuve did in 2000, was genuinely impressive. Um, obviously, it then went rubbish again. With the with the Spa shunts in 99, I remember Jock Clear, Villeneuve's engineer, saying on TV that the main thing Jack was annoyed about was, and I quote, he got outdone by Zonta, who had a bigger shunt. Um, but I don't know if we should give Zonta credit uh, for still trying to attempt Eau Rouge flat after he'd seen what had happened to Villeneuve, who'd had a massive accident there in 98 as well, I think. But, Ed, uh, it's a good point that Matt raised there about 2000, because you've written quite a lot of stuff about 2000 in the past. And I remember you speaking very highly of the sort of Villeneuve-BAR combination in that second year, especially given how badly it went to begin with. 
yeah, they, they got their act together pretty well. It's strange that that team and its BAR guys and then its Honda Works guys always had good people. It had good facilities. There was good investment there, and and there were kind of moments where things lined up and came together, but it never quite seemed to seem to gel correctly. So yeah, after that after that stuttering first season, you then thought, yeah, this this team actually is going to make good. That that hubris is not so misplaced. But then of course it, it all all uh, started to get away, and it, of course in the end, because Jensen Button came in in two thousand and three and outperformed Villeneuve. Villeneuve ended up out, and uh, it was Button who was able to benefit from the team actually being pretty strong in in two thousand and four, which is the the kind of final irony, I guess, which means ultimately it was a it was a bad career move for Villeneuve to get involved in that team. What one kind of what if that comes out of that two thousand season as well? Obviously, Villeneuve did leave relatively soon afterwards, three years later, but his form in the early part of the season was so good. There was loads of rumours that McLaren was chasing him to replace Coulthard, that Renault was heavily chasing him, which eventually came to pass in a very weird way a few seasons later for a few awful races. But yeah, the, the what if of uh, Villeneuve ending up at McLaren alongside Hacken in, in 2001 is, is a really tantalising one. It just shows how much he was impressing at that point. You know, the, the BAR that season, okay, it ended up fifth in the championship, but it qualified, I think, 17th at Monaco and possibly Hungary as well, which shows... Actually, it still did not handle and couldn't handle slow corners and, and high downforce. So, yeah, BAR was a, a massive hubristic mistake overall, but it did let Villeneuve show a bit of what he was made of in 2000. We should remember that this was Villeneuve long before he kind of turned into this will work for food journeyman who just turned up in everything random for about the past 15 years now you're on thin ice mr straw <laughs> but but you know he was an outstanding driver and and i think it's important to remember that it's very easy to say oh well, he just lucked in by getting in the williams but you know there were some very very good performances and we should remember that he's a world champion for a reason well this is excellent you both keep putting your hand up to want to keep talking and as we're talking about jack villeneuve and in a positive light for once i'm more than happy about that uh I'm going to pause there because the phone's ringing in the other room. Perhaps it's Jacques Villeneuve. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, I hear you're complimenting me. He's heard somebody talking positively for the first time in 10 years. <laughs> he just wants to thank us. He hasn't heard all my thoughts then for the past 20 years. Right, it's stopped. It's stopped. Uh, okay, let's move on. Let's talk about another what if then because Marcus P. Knight says, Loving the podcast, I'd love to hear an episode about Jean Alessi. He was part of my childhood and seemed such a wasted or unfulfilled talent. Perhaps something on the aborted Williams deal, what might have been, etc. Matt, a little bit of context here is obviously that Alacy was looking like a future superstar with Tyrrell in '89, in the back half of '89, and then through 1990. Had a deal signed with Williams. Uh, they didn't announce it, which got him a bit worried. And he ends up going to Ferrari instead. And Williams take Nigel Mansell. So the common theme here, Matt, tends to be, oh, if Alacy had gone there instead of Mansell, he'd have been world champion in 1992. Do you subscribe to that theory? Yes, probably. But I... So our colleague Sam Smith wrote an amazing uh, Jean Alacy feature recently about his Tyrrell years. It's, it's, if you haven't read it, it's called The Meteoric Rise of an F1 Legend That Never Was. And I think that... That's that title sums up Alacy very, very well. That his form for Tyrrell when he first came into F1 was was absolutely stunning. The way he took the fight to Senna, how high up the grid he was getting that car. He he absolutely looked like the man who was going to defeat Senna, and uh, and depose him from the top of F1. Later in Alacy's career, we we found out just how how peaky and inconsistent he was. And the, the ability was obviously there, but how, 
he just didn't seem capable of accessing it consistently enough. He really had to be in the right environment, which Tyrrell was and Jordan was in Formula 3000 before that. But he had this incredible feel. So many drives uh, on slick tires in the wet um, just showed what he was capable of car control-wise. But you you add up, you put a, a drive like Suzuka 95 where he got a jump-start penalty, switched to slicks on a damp track, tore through the field, had a spin along the way, made Schumacher look pretty slow at the time. You put that alongside next race in Adelaide, he turns across on Schumacher while being overtaken like he forgets there's another car there. And that kind of two-week spell summed up a Lacey in, F, in F1 for me. I think he would have won the title in the 92 Williams because I think he would have driven it quicker than Patrese and that car was so much better than anything else. But I think Senna would have had a much closer shot at that season with Alacy and the Williams. And I just... In the early 90s, I think you'd rate Alacy and Hakkinen quite similar at some points. They were both these rising stars who seemed to crash quite a lot and make poor decisions. But when you put Hakkinen in a proper car to go for the title, this inner steeliness came out and he started delivering, okay, a little bit flaky at times still. I don't. I think Alacy would have needed a very, very stable environment and a very superior car to be world champion. He did deserve to win a lot more than one race, but it was as much of his own misjudgment as misfortune in that. He's such a curious egg of a driver, isn't he, John Alacy? Because I think most people, most Formula One fans, even if you're not a Lacey fan, enjoyed him when he's in Formula One and like to see him do well. I suspect actually he would have done well in the in the the '92 Williams, probably the '93 car as well, because I think he was kind of well tuned to the the confidence you needed to take in, the, in an active ride car, which Mansell was able to make work so well, whereas Patrese struggled once out of the passive car. But I also think Alacy suffered from, as you've alluded to there, the fact that he wasn't perhaps a driver who was the complete package off the track in terms of the way he worked and thought and worked methodically through things. And I think that coincided with him coming into Formula One at a time just before the level of drivers just went upwards, not in terms of fundamental ability, but Schumacher changed the game ultimately. And we did see that with a lot of drivers almost being partly left behind in the 90s. And I think that's why Lacey ended up being a driver who, when the stars aligned, could still do magical things because that raw material was there. But I just don't think he ever really, really got on top of Formula One and the and the, the demands. You needed to be a relentlessly strong driver but he just goes to show you you know you can be a cult figure and have one win and everyone loves you you know that's that's probably worth 10 grand prix wins uh from some perspectives yeah i'm i've given a lot of thought to the would he have won the championship in 92 thing i'm not convinced that he would because i think as well as Patrese not necessarily getting on with the active car in the same way mansell did i think mansell got inside Patrese's head as 91 went on you know if we look back at early 91 Patrese was in fantastic form then and Mansell was actually struggling to get on terms with him at times. So I just wonder if Patrese had had a great 91 without Mansell kind of turning the tables on him on track and off track, I think he might have gone into 92 a bit more confident, not so worried about, oh, how does Nigel hold the car in in these corners? You know, there's all kinds of stories, isn't there? Like I think Mansell told Patrese that in the chicanes at Monza, you just lock your knuckles underneath the, the ridge of the cockpit and that's how you hold the car in position. And then Patrese came back with like bleeding knuckles and said, how do you do it, Nigel? And in the end, someone had to tell Patrese, he's not actually doing that. That's just what he told you. So I think without the disruption of Mansell, Patrese in the Williams FW14B, I think he could have got the job done and we might have found out maybe earlier than we did what Lacey's real level was. But let's talk about some more Williams contracts that didn't come to anything uh, because Matthias Hammer asks, why has everyone forgotten Buttongate and why isn't anyone talking about it? 
So we're assuming that Matthias is asking about the Jensen Button contract sagas of the mid-2000s. I had to research this recently for a video that we've done on the race YouTube channel, which is 10 crazy F1 contract stories. So check that out if you haven't seen it already. And the timeline is this. Button is at BAR in 2004. He's finally scoring podiums. He's one of the main distant threats to Michael Schumacher and Ferrari. And then it gets announced that he signed for Williams for 2005. This was despite him having a contract with BAR for the following season, but Button felt that he'd found a, a loophole in his contract that allowed him to break that deal and go to Williams. BAR managed to fight that, and Button had to stay, which he's admitted in his book was a bit awkward because everybody knew that he really wanted to leave. But he and Frank Williams said that they would work together again in the future. So Button signs a contract again for 2006, and by that point, he realises that BMW Williams, the relationship is ending. Williams are much less competitive than they were earlier in the decade. And then he's trying to get out of the Williams deal this time. So he goes from trying to sign for Williams to trying to get out of Williams across two summers. And Frank Williams holds him to the deal. He says it's watertight. You can't get out of it. And Button basically had to pay off the entire contract to get out of that one. So across two years, really, that whole saga ran, Ed. And the thing that's always bugged me about this is why did he want to leave BAR just as that everything was coming good there? You know, the, the 2004 Button BAR Honda combination was phenomenal. It seemed like such a strange time to want to go to Williams, who were just at the beginning of their downward spiral. Well, Jensen himself has said he was poorly advised at that time, and I suspect, this is me reading into it, what he means there is, it was clear the writing was on the wall that the Williams-BMW relationship was was starting to disintegrate and BMW wanted to go its own way. And, you know, a savvy management team would have been onto that and realised that actually Williams was not the place to be going. So I suspect that played a, a part in it. So, yeah, I think it was, a, it was, it was just a, a series of mistakes. You know, we often hear drivers talking about managers advising them poorly should we say and I think there was the question about why people don't talk about it and I think the reason this isn't talked about is a it was a fairly long and tedious saga that kept flaring up but nothing ever happened and b unlike the Lacey Williams thing where you say well look you turned your back on a great car to be in sort of a, a car that was sometimes quite good but never that great in which case it looks stupid whereas this was the right decision for Button staying where he stayed put him on the path that won in the world championship and then took him to to McLaren so there's no kind of fun what if the only what if here is is a is wouldn't it have been stupid if he ended up back at back at Williams he could have uh, he could have ruined his career so I think that's why we probably don't don't talk about it and because it because it's all contracts and that kind of thing it's a fairly dry sort of topic great to look back on as a one thing but to go for it, it just kept flaring up it got very tedious yeah it ran for so long and, and that will get its own episode just because there's so much detail and such a long timeline that i tried to condense into what might be the longest question on this episode so let's uh, let's move back into the 90s of our next question from dan smith uh, he says he'd like to hear about failed prospective F1 teams. And he names a few, but one that he does name is Lola in 1997. Now, one of our journalists, Sam Smith, who works uh, covering Formula E with us, uh, worked at Lola for a very long time. He didn't join until uh, 2002, but he was there for a long time. And he's, he knows a lot about this project and he's spoken to a lot of people who were involved in it. So uh, we're going to bring Sam in briefly here. I spoke to him earlier just to find out during his time at Lola, 
how that doomed project of 1997 when they turned up for one race which they failed to qualify for how that's look how that was looked back on when he was at Lola and this is what Sam had to tell us well it was it was such a pivotal um deal a pivotal time in Lola's history because it it split the it split the heritage of Lola in half really there was the Eric Broadley period of course and then after what happened in 97 there was the the rejuvenation under Martin Birain for the for the last sort of tranche of its history but I, I do recall having a fair few conversations with engineers and some of the commercial people who were still at Lola in 2002 when I joined and the project was viewed I think differently to, to the outside world in that the people who were involved knew that it was pretty straightforward how things played out in that the commercial part of the deal was uh, not thought through properly i do recall a couple of guys there one of them was a chap now who's sadly not with us anymore a guy called david scotney who'd been at lola since the late 70s and worked on pretty much everything that had gone through the doors there and he was involved in that in terms of the the testing if we can call it testing i think it was a half an hour at santa pod on a february morning and uh, i do recall him telling me that there was a sort of carry on style um sort of uh, non-military precision test there that when the van broke down with some bits in it and some parts had to come from a supplier and that almost set the tone for the debacle that happened in Australia the reason why it was so uncompetitive in Sospiri and Rosset Sounds was you know palpably nothing to do with the drivers it was just because the whole project had been rushed forward um, the initial plan that was discussed in I think it would have been early 96 don't forget this stretch back down to sort of 95 as well uh, they had a, a test car that Alan McNish had tested on a few occasions but it was always intended to debut for the new regs in 98 the the, the narrower cars and the groove tire era of Formula One but it was it was um, it was expediated to 97 it was never gonna work and the the reason why it never worked was because it, it never it never saw a wind tunnel i mean there was no aero done on this and a lot of the guys at lola um had some faith blind faith in that it would be okay and that it wouldn't be too far off the marks and it would be able to at least get on the grid but i think that was born born out because of a lot of it was eric broadley's faith uh, eric was the kind of guy who didn't put that much emphasis on aerodynamics he was as old school as you get and of course formula one had got to the stage where aero was king so it was never going to happen from that point of view and and so it played out so there, there was a tangible part of the history there because in the stores there were parts of one of the chassis i mean there was an entire tub in a sort of dusty corner of the stores area which always you know it was almost it was almost as if you should say some kind of uh, hex or something as you went past it you know some kind of spell or incantation as you went past this this tub because it was such a like i said it was such a crux to lola's history there were so many different um different narratives around that so yeah I, it, it's it, it was a very interesting time lots of uh lots of i think memories of a, a doomed formula one project that 
on the back of some good work done with LaRousse in particularly, sort of soured Lola's name in F1, unfortunately. Great insight there from Sam on, again, another subject that will get its own episode. Such a, such a weird story and such a shame, really, that it didn't work out. But as we know from the pre-qualifying episode that we did recently, you two love your rubbish F1 teams. So who do you want to give a shout out here to, Matt? Um, actually, some good teams that made potentially rubbish F1 cars and then for various reasons didn't bother racing them. So, oh, nice. So just, just before Lola um, turned up and then disappeared again, the Dams team, which is a proper Formula 3000, great at that point, went as far as building an F1 car and the project fell through, I think, funding-wise before it could get onto the grid. If Have a little search for a picture of that Dams car. Quite a nice livery, but it looks like a, a doorstop, basically. It, it, it's bulky. It was chunky. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it might have been the thing that the 9540 had sex with to make the 96 Ferrari, possibly, in retrospect, go back to that earlier question. What made the 9640, though? Because that was hideous as well. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> a very good point. It was yeah. adopted. <laughs> and then swiftly uh, rejected by its adopted parents halfway through the season. Uh, around the same time the dams thing didn't happen, Dome, the Japanese constructor, made an F1 one car that certainly visually looked more in keeping with the times. But again, that's another project with the funding uh, didn't come through. Supernova I didn't get as far as building a car, but was being talked about as a potential F1 entrant at the time while it was dominating F3000. But I do think the Lola thing was a warning to people as well. You know, Lola was a very reputable constructor. It, it wasn't hadn't had its IndyCar downturn at that point. It wasn't quite on Reynard's pace, but it was still winning a lot of uh, kart races. So for its project to be so horrifically unsuccessful, it was a pretty big red flag. Um, and after that, I think I, you know it was into the era of nobody apart from manufacturers trying to get into F1 at all. Well, seeing as Matt's taken some of the more credible ones, I just have to throw in my love of the the kind of projects that never really got off the ground. And you often see little mentions of them in in news stories. And back in the day, our products like Bravo, the first racing, they made a car. We mentioned that on the pre-qualifying, uh, say, the Ricardo de Villa uh, design study, which went on to become uh, uh, the life in rather undercooked form. You know, there was, a, there was a project Phil Hill and Dan Gurney announced at the US Grand Prix one year, um, about 2002, that was about an American F1 team that then nothing more was heard of. You know, all these ideas, there was a Peugeot F1 design study being done um obviously they they never really progressed on with it they would have been serious if they'd done it but there's just so many of of, of these that turn out the glass team for example they they designed a car and then that became the modern lamborghini because it was going to be lamborghini engine lamborghini took it on with with that team so it's just all these cases where people took on things they couldn't actually deliver on and just coming back to where i started on this podcast that shows why what jordan did was so so good because as gary anderson will tell you when he started work he was told they had a headquarters and that kind of thing and it's just an empty industrial unit so literally they just did all that from uh from scratch without a great deal of uh of money but i, I love the ambition and i love the you know you'll see drawings of cars and what was designed and they all get passed around between each other because people think oh that team failed with that design let's take their design that's bound to be great and try and build it and then they fail and there's some there's some cars that went through several different uh teams before eventually uh being retired from uh even the conceptual stage great stuff well, we talked about Reynard earlier, didn't we? And of course, they had their own project earlier in the 90s, which, as you've explained in the past, Matt, and you guys, well, Ed and Matt, you were both talking about this before we recorded, we ended up with two Formula One cars based off of the original concept of what Reynard was trying to do for, I think, about 1992. 
Yeah, well, you ended up in 94. The best car was the Benetton by dint of the fact it won the World Championship. And then the worst car was the Pacific. And they were both, at, at origin, the same car. You can see the familial resemblance, but the Pacific was a desperately, desperately undercooked version. The Benet- the Benetton was the version that had had lots and lots of development work done. And I've always found that amazing that you get these uh, you get these sort of two two kind of evolutionary directions different branches of the uh, tree of car evolution and to produce one that's just a disaster the other that's that's a triumph just uh, a, fan- a fantastic story that one yeah i think in the past ed you've called the pacific a low res benetton which i always thought was quite a good description Let's move on. Eamon asks us to suggest some races to watch on the F1 TV app. Uh, you know, we're not asked to promote F1 TV, but I've got it and it's very good. Uh, all kinds of highlights and races you can watch on there. So let's pick some for, for Eamon. I'm going to let you guys pick three each. Let's try and rapid fire these. So, Ed, give us three F1 races that Eamon and everybody else should watch on the F1 TV app, particularly while we don't have any racing going on in 2020 to watch. Uh, 93 Portuguese Grand Prix, Forgotten Classic, Schumacher's second win, Alan Prost pressuring him to the end and clinching the World Championship, McHacklin out qualifying Ayrton Senna then crashing out, Alacy leading the first 19 laps after sweeping around the outside of everyone, Gerhard Berger's hilarious and terrifying journey after active suspension lunacy that harpooned him across the front of Derek Warwick, Damon Hill stalling from pole and coming back through to the, the podium, it's got everything, it really is uh, a forgotten classic. The other two races, Spa 95 speaks for itself, Schumacher wins from 16th on the grid, Damon Hill second from 8th, big battle there, wet conditions, uh, and 19 1990 France, Ivan Capelli almost wins in the Leighton House, a race after he and teammate Mauricio Guzman failed to qualify in Mexico. And with Adrian Newey, who just left the team, watching at home, seeing his car almost winning the race. Just a brief engine stumble allowed Prost to nip past. So uh, that always disappoints me when I see that. I'm always hoping Capelli holds on to win every time I see that. I'm sure Capelli is as well. And I knew we'd get a Leighton House mention in before this series was out. What about you, Matt? What are your three? So Nürburgring 1995, a properly awesome Schumacher drive. They're hunting down a Lacey twice. You get the genius of a Lacey on on, uh, on slicks on a damp track early on as well. And you get a Williams FW17 failure with the car being super quick, but Hill colliding with Schumacher, crashing by himself later. And I think that's one of the races where Coulthard went off pre-race as well. Not on the parade lap, but on the reconnaissance lap. So I was driving a ill-handling spare car. Loads going on in that race and a really good finale. Um, Austria 2001 is a bit of an underrated Montoya belligerence classic, I'd say. Obviously, everyone remembers him uh, stuffing it down the inside of Schumacher into Lagos earlier that year. But his uh, very dogged attempts to stop Schumacher getting past in Austria that year set up a really good race. Um, I think Coulthard won that one in the end um, in a pretty tense finale. And Silverstone 2003, uh, remembered for the mad priest on the track, but um, one of Rubens Barrichello's kind of most robust elbows out hard charging races as well. Uh, proper sign of what Barrichello could do in the right mood great selection there I I would obviously nominate anything from 1997 um, but the F1 YouTube channel has the 97 title decider which is a a great race even if you ignore the collision between Schumacher and Villeneuve you know they were absolutely flat out before that fascinating uh, everything on the line battle between those two Nürburgring 99 remains one of my favorite races of all time as well a race that a lot of people could have won Let's pick another one. If I'm going to pick another one from 97, I'll pick one where Jacques Villeneuve didn't do well. And that was uh, Australia 97, which was McLaren's 
first win after a long layoff. It's a great race. Um, Villeneuve's taken out at the start, having qualified on pole by nearly two seconds. Frentzen leads for quite a while. Then you've got Coulthard and Schumacher in the mix. Frentzen has his brake failure, and it's a great chase to the end and uh, a great way for McLaren to open its new Silver Arrows era with a victory. Next question comes from Mr. Campbell, who says, would Olivier Panis have been a French great had he not broken his legs in 1997? That car, which of course was the first Prost, was cracking and he was perennially underrated. Brilliant to have another 1997 question. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Panis was superb in the early races of 97 before he had that crash in Canada. Yeah, I think Mr. Campbell, he would not have been a French great, but he would have had a, an amazing 97 season. We, we talked about this a little bit in our Hungary 97 episode. The, the Prost did fade later in the year. The team got increasingly messy. Um, but if Panis hadn't had that injury, he'd have probably held things together on the driver front better than the very inexperienced Jarno Trulli would have done. So I'm pretty sure Panis would have won races and would have made Prost much more competitive in a few of the Bridgestone races where that was the tyre to have. But I don't think that crash really changed the course of Panis's career. He would have been with Prost the following season when it became pretty appalling. And he would have got stuck in the mess that Prost became. And it's interesting. He, he had five podium finishes very early in his career. There was that crazy Hockenheim race, the crazy Adelaide 95 race, and Panis's amazing Monaco win, and then the start of 97. And then he was solid at uh, BAR and Toyota later in the season, made a great contribution as a test driver. But I don't think there was... I don't think in the end, apart from a f maybe a, an extra win in 97 and, and maybe like fourth in the championship or something that year, I don't think Panis's end of career stats really misrepresent what he was capable of particularly. It's one of those funny ones, isn't it? Because I, I don't think that crash did much more than just create a brief break in his CV, shall we say, because I don't think it changed where he was going to be, as you said. He could have been a, in a top team, which he never was able to drive for, obviously tested for McLaren uh, over a period of time. I think he obviously would have got more wins and I think he'd have probably been seen as a very very good number two driver i don't think he had that last consistent slither of of pace you need but yeah a very uh a very decent and capable driver. He had his day of days at monaco of course now while well, that was a chaotic race and he started down the grid he drove really well in that race um i think if it's only about the top three that that helped them helped him by getting out of the way through failures and that kind of thing and he helped eddie Irvin out of the way famously of course so yeah a, a good driver but probably had about probably had about the, the the right career, a good Grand Prix driver. Yeah, I think Matt hit the nail on the head, really, because obviously Prost took over the Ligier team so late before the 97 season that the best car Prost ever ran was a Ligier. And then when Prost was doing it, uh, them, or doing it themselves and they got the Peugeot engine for the following year, nothing about Panis's accident and disrupted 97 season would have stopped the 98 and 99 and 2000 Prosts being rubbish. Um, obviously Panis had gone by 2000 but Prost were going to be rubbish during those years anyway so it's just a shame that Panis maybe missed out on some good opportunities uh, through that summer and I think even if that Prost project with Peugeot all the French money and interest had actually delivered on its potential rather than turning into a bit of a political shambles I think even then Panis would have found himself in a position where the team was thinking yeah he's good but we could probably do with a, a getting a, a mega driver in maybe even Jacques Villeneuve they'd have uh, they'd have signed well that's brilliant earlier you were sucking up to Gary Anderson now you're sucking up to me but I'll allow it JR uh, Ed says um I know this overlaps into V8s. Well, we'll ignore that bit. But there's a great uh, discussion looking into the failure of Toyota's F1 team. So let's talk about the V10 bit, Ed, because you've written a, an in-depth article recently about Toyota's failure across its entire time in F1. 
But what did it do wrong in the beginning, in the early years, when it had the V10 engines? Well, I think actually what, what went wrong early on is the same to what went on later in terms of going wrong. Ultimately, Toyota didn't just want to win an F1. It wanted to win an F1 using the Toyota way. It's corporate philosophy. This is a very well thought out and fully realised philosophy. There's a whole book on it you can read about it, which uh, which I have read. It's a bit dry, but uh, but it tells you how they operate. But this was a philosophy that works for automotive projects and other activities. It's entirely incompatible with F1, which is about moving fast, decisively in the right direction. Corporate side was always a bit too involved. There was always the problem of decisions had to be referred from the F1 team in Cologne back to Japan that created a lag for one decision not a major problem but if you're in a chain of decisions that can put you a long way behind just wasn't enough autonomy for the team that hindered it despite the resources and quality of personnel probably actually the best example is even when there was clear progress as there was during Mike Gascoigne's time I'm very briefly going to drift into later era they had that good season in, in 05 and then in 2006 a corporate decision the team objected to forced them to move from michelin to bridgestone rubber didn't work with the suspension concept the team did not want to do this so there when you had the best upward trajectory it was a toyota corporate decision that, that spoiled it toyota understood the need for enormous investment in f1 and it was willing to make that investment but it never understood formula one if you want to prevail in f1 you have to adapt to what works in f1 and not impose your own way so we've now had it all the ingredients the money the people it ultimately flattered to deceive yeah that switch to bridgestone of course putting toyota back on japanese rubber and they had a habit particularly in the early years of uh, trying to pin all the blame on the drivers which is why you quite often had sweeping driver lineup changes because the car couldn't possibly be rubbish. It must be that the likes of Alan McNish, Mikasalo, uh, Panis eventually, and Cristiano De Mata and, and the rest were all driving it badly. There's a great story from when they were testing. I think this is with the, the prototype uh, F1 car, the 2001 car, the uh, De Cortan's design car, that there was a, a Toyota board member who was watching testing. This was one of the group tests and said to McNish or Salo, said, oh, uh, you're braking much earlier than these other people. And the driver's trying to explain to him, yeah, I haven't got the downforce. The downforce is part of the braking potential. So there's just a little vignette that shows how it wasn't quite understood. Yeah, I always thought that 2001 test car looked good, but apparently was absolutely awful. Let's move on. Matt, Martin Robertson asks, well, he says, it's May the 1st, 1994, a date everyone in Formula One, of course, knows where we're going with this. Ayrton Senna has just converted pole to the win for the first time with Williams and dedicated his victory to Roland Ratzenberger. What happens next and how does that change the next 26 years? You haven't got to go for all 26 years, Matt. Maybe just give us the first couple of years. Uh, it's one of those great what-ifs, isn't it? How would F1 have looked without the death of Senna and how would his career have played out at Williams? I think the really important point there is in this alternative version of history, we're still looking after the death of Ratzenberger and how that would have affected Senna. Um, even though it was only really hours of Senna's life left after that accident, it did. It he took it to heart in a big way. He was part of the urgent moves around the GPDA being reformed. His heart-to-heart -heart conversations with Professor Sid Watkins about even continuing in F1. I I can see it having had a profound effect on Senna's whole approach to his career after that. Um, he was already a bit suspicious about what Benetton was doing that year as well. He had a few run-ins with Schumacher over driving ethics, which were perhaps a little bit hypocritical on Senna's part. But, I, but the more I thought about this question, I could more see a, 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 an alternative future for F1 where Senna actually kind of reined it in a little bit and became the kind of more mature elder statesman and the one leading safety crusades and that sort of thing, and maybe not making um, 
so many of the the dodgy moves he had. Maybe Schumacher might have seemed more like the kind of devil to Senna's angel as those seasons went on. I think that would have, I can see that having had quite a profound effect on on Senna's psyche in the wake of Ratzenberger's death. In terms of like pure results, if you assume that Benetton would have still got a two race ban later in the season and all the other potentially dodgy things would have still gone on, Schumacher, sorry, uh, Senna would have would have scored better than Hill through the rest of that year and therefore beaten Schumacher to the World Championship that year. I don't think Senna would have made the mess of 95 that Hill and Coulthard did. So potentially you're looking at a run of straight Senna championships with Williams um, and the Schumacher era being delayed a little bit. I think Schumacher would have been an enormously fun rival for him through that time. It would have been super close, but I think those would have been Senna and Williams titles. And then the, the last thing on this that I thought of as an immediate point before going, I can't go that far into fake history. I reckon Senna might have been the one that uh, Ferrari ended up taking rather than rather than Schumacher. There was always that famous Senna quote saying he wanted to end his career at Ferrari even if the car was as slow as a beetle. He would have seen how logical Jean Todd was trying to make Ferrari and might have thought, actually, this is not going to be as slow as a beetle. It's going to be quite, it's going to be quite a decent place to have my, my farewell before I go off to become president of Brazil um, or whatever he would have done next. It would have been something enormous, clearly. I, you know, I wouldn't say I was an enormous Senna fan, but I do think he would have probably won the next few titles with Williams. I think Schumacher's record would be a little bit poorer. And it would have been an awful lot of fun to see what happened next. Such a lost rivalry. And of course, the important thing there is that Jacques Villeneuve would have still won the 97 title. Uh, Ed, let's continue talking about mid-90s and Schumacher and Benetton because Thomas Harrison Lord says, apart from Schumacher leaving Benetton, why do you think the team never managed to successfully follow up on the lofty heights of 94 and 95? Ross Braun, for example, was still with the team in 96. What do you reckon, Ed? Benetton obviously never got back to, under that ownership, never got back to where it was before. And it was a decade later when the team was Renault that it won back-to-back championships again with Fernando Alonso. So what do you think went wrong when Schumacher left? Well, I think you have to look for the reasons why Schumacher left. He was going to leave, whatever happened. He was talking to Williams. He spoke to McLaren. I think the feeling was he had to move on. And I've asked Schumacher about this some years ago. And he said that he, he knew that, Benetton was capable of winning a few more championships maybe, but he knew it didn't have the backing and the infrastructure to be kind of a powerhouse team. And he's absolutely right, because you see that Enstone team, it comes and goes and comes and goes, and it, it always ends up standing and coming back, but it never has like a sustained period where it's brilliant. That's what Renault are hoping to to build now. Uh, Ross Braun had suggested that Schumacher would probably have won the 96 and 7 titles in the Benetton, but then you saw that decline, of course, then they were taken over by Renault a few years, uh, a few years later. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say Benetton would have struggled. They're, they're good people there. Obviously, had, had Schumacher stayed there, it wouldn't necessarily have been the case that Rory Byrne and all these people and uh, Ross Braun would have moved on. Having said that, Ferrari spoke to just about everyone of any note in that in that period. Anyone who didn't move there, and a lot of them did, if you ask them, they said, yeah, well, I had a conversation with uh, Ferrari. I mean, Gary Anderson said he had, had a conversation with him. He didn't particularly fancy the, the idea of, uh, of going there. So I think... Bit of a commute. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. And I think it just was the logical move. And, and Benetton, they did... They, they maybe didn't make the best choice with taking the Alacy Burger driver lineup. I think maybe taking one of those would have been a good move, but it wasn't exactly a, a driver-rich period at, the, at that stage. There was uh, there were not many bankable drivers, shall we say? So easy to criticise them. So yeah, I just think Benetton was not ever going to be sustained brilliance. But maybe that that double world that that two years could have been a four-year spell, and then who knows what happens. 
Stuart Coulter says, in your opinion, what race between 1989 and 05 provided the biggest shock podium? Not just one person, but all three drivers. And he probably takes the best one from us already because he says, if it were me, I'd go for Europe 99, that famous race at the Nürburgring, won by Johnny Herbert with Jano Trulli and Rubens Barrichello on the podium. So, Matt, have you been racking your brains? Have you been able to come up with one that's anywhere near as good as that? No. Um, I th- but I think Monaco 96 comes quite close. Coulthard's one who spoils that because McLaren was sort of in podium form by then. But Panis first and Herbert third is is a pretty good combination. Possibly if you take it in, although it's a Williams win in, in the 80s, Canada 1989 with a Williams 1-2 and De Cesare's third in, in a Delara. In the context of that of that era, that almost gets a look in. Um Hockenheim 94, which we talked about earlier, was possibly a shout given how long it had been since Ferrari had won and how rubbish the Ligier was. But nah, Nürburgring 99 is the absolute benchmark there. Although you could argue that Stuart was a podium-worthy car, so two Stuarts on the podium in 99 maybe wasn't that big an upset. I think if you looked at the odds for that race uh, being on the podium, you're not going to find one that's got a more uh, unexpected one. Uh, I would throw in Suzuka 1990, which was Nelson Piquet, Roberto Moreno, Aguri Suzuki, Suzuki's only podium. Roberto Moreno just dropped in to replace uh, um, Alessandro Nannini, who'd had the helicopter crash. And of course, he was <laughs> Moreno had spent the previous years driving absolute sheds around uh, towards the back. And uh, yeah, Nelson Piquet, yeah, it wasn't a surprise to see Nelson Piquet winning a Grand Prix, but it had been a few years at that point, and the Benetton was a good car, so you wouldn't be surprised to see a Benetton driver on the podium, but a 1-2, Naguri Suzuki third, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say that's up there, but I, I, fun, I fundamentally agree that, that Europe 99 is the top of the list. I would throw in Spa 98, I think a Jordan 1-2 with Jean Lacey third is a good shout as well. Uh, next question comes from Canuck, who says... Uh, what convinced Honda to switch from the V10 to the V12, boo, in 1991? Uh, Ed, we'll come to you with this one. Uh, obviously, we talked about this in our Alain Prost episode back at the start of the series because one of the reasons Ferrari was so confident going into 91 was that Honda seemed to be struggling with its V12 engine. And there was the famous story we retold where Senna was very critical of the engine after a test at Estoril, I believe, and Honda had to put out a statement reminding him that the engine had been in Phoenix spec rather than uh, Estoril, and that's why it maybe didn't have a lot of top-end grunt. But so, have you looked into this one? Yeah, there are a number of, of factors. V12 engines suited Honda commercially because they uh, they were pushing V12 engine cars at that stage, but also this was at a time when McLaren was was quite worried about Ferrari. And, you know, Ferrari was getting good performance out of that sort of thing. That McLaren had to have a big push to try and uh, catch up on the aero side. So I think that played a, a, a big part in it, the belief that there was more potential in the uh, in the V12 engine, which didn't quite come to, to pass in the end. So I think it's one of those things that it's very easy to think, right, what do we do for the next step? Well, oh, we do this. And we have to remember as well. We'll add cylinders. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. And we have to remember, we're not long into the return of the normally aspirated era at the moment. So there was still kind of this question of what's the best way to go in terms of uh, your atmospheric engine. I just think just the the, the appeal, the, the potential grunt of the of the V12 ended up drawing them them in, but probably wasn't a wise decision in the end because as well as it not working quite as well, that engine did get pretty good ultimately. Um, it also created a few extra packaging and cooling problems. So uh, yeah, not, not a great move. No, and two years later, Honda were out. McLaren were nowhere near as dominant and running 
customer Fords, uh, which led to losing Ayrton Senna. Barnard Starr says, uh, why didn't Martin Brundle get the Williams drive for 1993? And how far, how do you think he would have stacked up against what Damon Hill eventually achieved with the team? Brundle to Williams is an interesting one. We obviously heard the famous stories that Flavio Briatore regrets getting rid of Brundle from Benetton at the end of 92 because Flavio had underestimated just how good Michael Schumacher was at that point. So Brundle's performances weren't quite so bad. But what do you think, Ed? Martin Brundle and a Williams, that would have changed the trajectory of his career, certainly in the 1990s. Yeah, and he, he was extremely close to that that Williams drive. He was a logical choice, given Benetton had decided to replace him, especially as he was coming on strongly in the, in the second half of the season against Schumacher. I remember as a 13-year-old being furious at the time when Brundle was uh, missed out and Hill got the drive. I remember seeing it on, uh, on CFAX, the... Uh, Sort of uh, the the internet before there was the internet where you could put it on your television for those younger listeners who uh, uh, who, who don't remember such CFAX and Teletext services. And Brundle thought he had the drive. The world thought he had the drive, which is why it was so so big a surprise when Hill got it. But over the course of a couple of days, apparently it, it sort of swung towards Hill, and and Williams decided to promote Hill from that test driver role. Brundle ended up at Ligier, which. If you follow the alternate history, there's a good chance Hill would have ended up in that Ligier drive. So, 93 Williams. Brundle would have won, run races. There's absolutely no question about that. He's among the, the best group of drivers never to win a Grand Prix. It's possibly might have given Alan Prost. He very much cruised to the 93 title, to be honest. A little bit more to think about because of that experience he had. But then again... Hill had the advantage of the continuity with the car, so maybe you kind of get to a, a similar car, kind of level with them, despite the fact Hill only had a couple of starts. So beyond that, and Brundle's only 15 months older than Hill, so he, he's kind of on that same trajectory that took Hill to the World Championship in, in 96. If that would have happened to him, for Brundle, is it absolutely impossible to say. Um, I think he'd have probably at least had a couple of years at Williams. He'd have won races in 93 and 94 as well. So he'd have ended up finishing his F1 career with uh, with at least a, a small handful of, uh, of, uh, of victories. I think the one caveat with Brundle is that, he, I mean, he carries the after effects of that Dallas 84 shunt in the Tyrrell to this day. And he was a very, very good driver in Formula 1, but I'm not quite sure he quite had that edge. It did have a, a bit of an impact on him. It's not perhaps quite as extreme as Johnny Herbert, but I think for Brundle that was, was a problem. So almost the more exciting question is what could a Brundle who never had that crash have done if he was given the Williams chance in uh, in, in that year? But but the, the bottom line is don't underestimate how good a driver Martin Brundle is. He's very, very good. And I've got no doubt whatsoever he would have won races with Williams in 93. Yeah, I think Brundle's massively underrated. Some of his seasons in poor machinery, even his Ligier season as late as 95, I think was really impressive. Uh, here's one of those drivers who never got a chance in the top team and I do think that asks a different set of questions of a driver and whether he was someone who was best as an excellent support act to a rising star talent or a really good underdog rather than being a title winner himself you know he never had the chance to prove it and I think like you say Ed the injury had a, had a big impact the one thing I would add in terms of comparing him to what Hill achieved okay the age was actually bizarrely similar but the perceptions of them were very different in terms of where they were in their careers. You know, Brundle was being referred to as a veteran by that time. Hill, even though he was quite old, was still seen as a an incoming rising star from junior racing. So, you know, age is almost irrelevant. They were kind of on different points on, on their graph. But yeah, I agree with Ed's assessment. I can't see Brundle having become world champion even in those cars, but he'd have won a good number of races and made, made a really good contribution to the Williams story. 
I suspect Brundle was a bit cheaper than uh, a bit more expensive rather than Hill as well, which probably played a played a part. And ultimately, Williams I think just recognised how how good a job Hill had done, and they did have a reasonable amount of comparative data because Brundle had been a Williams test driver in the past; he'd even done a race for Williams in '88, so they had a reasonable idea. And I almost get the feeling that part of it was they said, "Well, actually, why aren't we giving this drive to to Hill? We need a support act for Alan Prost." Who better than the test driver who knows this car better than anyone? So let's finish the episode going from talking about one of the most advanced Formula One cars of all time, the 1993 Williams, to some of the worst drivers of this era. Yoldi Autosport, a Twitter account that's well worth a follow if you want to see how eras like this one and many before it were covered in the media at the time. And someone I should probably contact to do some of the research for Series 2 uh, has given us a few questions, but the one I've picked is worst driver to race in this era. So, Matt, take it away. Uh, I'll go for Jean-Denis Delatraz, who made three extremely slow appearances. It's the sheer slowness that um, tipped it for me. The fact he was 12 seconds off the pace in qualifying um, when he first turned up for Pacific at Estoril. And uh, he had quite a difficult weekend with problems and, and mistakes, but every session he was 12 or 13 seconds off the pace. You know, even at the Nürburgring in his second race, the, the best it got was nine seconds off the pace. That he, he is like the reason for the 107% qualifying rule in a single person. And I think also the, the comparison to other people who were very slow is quite telling there as well. He turned up for LaRousse once at the end of 94 and was uh, over two seconds slower than Hideki Noda, who was also slow. So there's, there's a lot of candidates for worst driver to race in this era. But I think partly because he stuck in my mind as an angry 15-year-old railing against pay drivers at the time and being convinced literally every single Formula 3000, Formula 3 and Formula 4 driver could have done better. He sticks in my mind as the most offensive from that period. Delatraz was very, very slow. Uh, you're absolutely right with that. But you have to look at everything, what they did in Formula One and their, their kind of fundamental level as established elsewhere. And uh, Delatraz had his had his moments, um, had a few podiums in F3000, etc. The driver I'm going for uh, managed to, uh, perhaps not quite be so spectacularly slow, but really did very little in single-seaters. It's Giovanni Lavaggi, who I imagine a lot of people remember. Ten races he entered in 95 and 96, first with Pacific, then with Minardi. He had some very poor machinery um, and at times some second-hand parts as well. But he was on average 1.74 seconds slower than his teammates. Andrea Montemini and Pedro Lamy, not bad drivers. Three times he failed to make the grid on the 107% qualifying cutoff on pace, which which isn't ideal. He was in slow cars, but they weren't quite that slow. I will kind of defend Lavaggi in that he was one of the last of the gentleman drivers. I think he was 35 when he made his F1 debut. He basically had no testing. Very small amount of single-seater experience. The main thing was a, a full season in European 3000 where almost all the time he failed to qualify. I think he made the grid twice. So there's your comparison with Delatraz. Um, but most of what he'd done was in sports cars, even into series champion. So I would say, relatively speaking, he did better than is usually remembered if you look at his background and, his, and the expectations and where he came from. But at the top level in sport, you're judged in absolute terms. And that's why I'd have to go for, uh, for Lavaggi because I think, he, he he was just a late comer. I don't think there was much, certainly much refined ability there because he hadn't had the chance to. Delatraz was at least what you might call a a more established, conventional single seater racing driver, even if he wasn't very quick in his outings. I think it tells us a lot about the state of Pacific in 1995 that both of those drivers ended up at that team. Uh, I'm going to pick a driver from 1995 as well, and mainly because when we had this. Uh, debate a few years ago during testing when we were doing all sport live coverage uh, this man nominated himself as the worst f1 driver of all time and that was taki anui uh, cult hero i think in the internet era of f1 
probably not as bad as the guys you mentioned there, but I feel that he deserves a mention because, of course, he's famous for getting run over by a medical car or service vehicle when he was trying to tend to his broken down car at the Hungaro ring. Uh, and that almost got him into a video we did recently on YouTube, which was uh, F1 drivers who you remember for one thing. The problem I knew he had was that that wasn't the only calamitous incident he had that year because earlier in the season, I think his car was being towed back to the pits or something at Monaco and he got hit by a course car there and got flipped. his car got flipped over by the course car. So he ended up upside down at Monaco because he got hit by a course car. So if those are the only two things that make you memorable in F1 and you nominated yourself to be the worst driver of all time, you were clearly pretty rubbish and you deserve a mention in this question. And of course, we're talking about rubbish F1 drivers and Ed's got his hand up. Yeah, I'm just obliged to say that the extra Inui comedy was the course car that hit him was driven by Rallye Sean Ragnotti, which is just just adds to the to the comedy value. But actually, it was interesting because I, I was looking through this period and there's a lot of not very good drivers, but actually the number of really terrible drivers who get in who never showed anything. You know, there's all sorts of names. People like Philip Adams, for example, who was remembered as a rubbish pay driver. One in F3. So, you know, a handy driver. And it's quite rare you get these ones who, who did absolutely nothing. I, I want to defend someone who's often accused of being the worst driver in this era as well. Ricardo Rosset, I do not think was anywhere near as bad as he looked in his Tyrrell season. I don't think his Arrow season was particularly terrible. I think his F3000 season before that was genuinely really impressive. And yet because he did some really terrible crash parking in Monaco, people think he was the worst of the 90s. He wasn't. Yeah, he was second in F3000 in his first season. That that count that counts for something. Uh, it's always a mixed mixture of circumstance and uh, and ability. And I would say that some of the other ones we mentioned, Delatraz and Lavaggi had a, had terrible situations and didn't do very much with them. Rossett had terrible situations and almost couldn't do anything uh, anything more with them. But he's uh, he's got he's got two of the he's got a footwork and a, uh, a Tyrrell in his garage. He he tried to buy the the Lola that we talked about earlier, but he thought it was a bit too expensive for for what it was. So <laughs> he's just got the two. How much was it? A tenner. Yeah, he, he didn't say how much it was, but yeah, that'd probably be a little bit uh, a little bit uh, too much given that he only drove it uh, in in one Grand Prix weekend, and I don't think I think he only had three gears or something. It was just all over the place. Yeah, it looked about as slow as a car that only had three gears. Rossett, of course, also famous for perhaps the fastest he ever drove in an F1 car was when he steamed into that accident at the start of the Belgian Grand Prix in 1998 because, yeah, okay, you were unsighted, but there was quite a lot of crashing going on in front of you. But while we're talking about rubbish F1 drivers, if I don't bring this episode to an end, Matt and Ed will be here for another few hours. We have got another episode to come where we'll take more of your questions next week. We'll have a different lineup of guests to, to share the love of your questions uh so many more to come we hope you've enjoyed this one and you can join us for what i promise will really be our final episode next week when we'll get into all sorts of random subjects that you've chosen for us and we can't wait to get through another batch next week Glenn, i've got one question oh, have he, we got... he can't be stopped what is it have we got a second series i've got a second series but you might not get to come back for it well i'll get to listen to it so i'm a winner either way you're still talking yeah okay Thank you, listeners. We hope you've been able to put up with Ed throughout this series. I promise you he's done now. And if he's really nice and writes some nice articles about Jacques Villeneuve, maybe he'll come back for Series 2. But we'll see the rest of you next week for our 11th and final episode of Series 1. <laughs>